thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your life. We've always taken mums the word to mean keeping things to ourselves. Well, this is no longer the case as we provide mums with the natural, honest, and reliable resources they need from experts and other mums to keep their families happy, healthy, and safe. Be prepared to use your passion for parenting to empower yourself with the knowledge of choice. Welcome to Mums the Word with your host, mum and chiropractor, Kaz Jaff. Hey, Mums the Word listeners. Very excited to have you back this week. It's Kaz Jaff, and we're discussing a topic that is definitely going to be important to a lot of you mums out there and one that you're going to want to share. I really love this interview. Um, probably mostly because it's with a dear friend and um, yeah I'm just so inspired by the work that she's doing and bringing to professionals and uh, and mums alike. Uh, chiropractor and mum of three Joe Sexton lives and works in the picturesque town of Mullaney one and a half hours north of Brisbane. When she's not doing the school run or dropping the kids off at soccer or ballet she can be found in her practice Hinterland Chiropractic. At work she is a passionate advocate of breastfeeding and has a particular interest in helping those babies and children with tongue ties. Through personal experience, she became aware of the impact of tongue tie on babies, their parents, especially the mums, and their families, and how difficult it can be to navigate that journey. In her spare time, ha ha ha, she says, she serves on the on the board of uh, Soto um, SOT Australia and runs seminars that aim to increase the knowledge of tongue tie and its impact amongst health professionals. Once again, very excited to bring you Joe Sexton and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Joe. So happy to have you on Mum's the Word. Very exciting for me here to have a fellow mum and a fellow chiropractor and also someone I respect a lot and have known for a long time. Could you please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Hey, Kaz. Um, thanks so much for the opportunity to share my story. Um, I'm a, a chiropractor and that's how we know each other. Um, and I work in a little town called Mullaney, which is just north of Brisbane. It's a beautiful green little town. It's a little bit rural. Um, but it's still close to enough city stuff for a city girl like me. I grew up in Melbourne. Um, I was on a five kid um, and had a really lovely family life. And I'm really lucky and blessed to have three children of my own. Um, three is enough for me. I don't know how my mum did fight. No, neither. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, I'm really lucky. I've got two beautiful boys. Oscar is nine and Angus is seven. And Penelope is my third child. She's we call her kids, um, and they keep me really busy. Uh, that, in, in conjunction with running my own business up here, sort of keeps my hands full. Hands full, but I, I couldn't think of two better jobs to do. To be honest, I feel so lucky and blessed in my life that I've been able to find two vocations that um, are really incredibly fulfilling and, and rewarding in, in, the, in the work we do. Um, and I find the two actually interrelate really well. I find my knowledge as a chiropractor really helps me as a parent. And agreed, agreed. And we're just so lucky with our hours as well. And Oh, like, yeah. yeah. And, and I think one of the things you worry the most about as a mum is, is our health choices and, and that approach and having a bit of background knowledge in and around that to even just to sort of be able to critically appraise a Google <laughs> search or, a, um, or an internet article or or a, a, um, a journal article at the same time. I think I find that so helpful and beneficial as a parent. Um, but what I've been really amazed with and, and probably surprised with uh, is as a parent how much it's helped me as a chiropractor. <laughs> so yeah, um, no, I agree with that too. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Uh, yeah. I think of my uh, chiropractic career before I had children, and I, I sort of sometimes have a real giggle to myself at some of the advice that I used to give to parents or. Um, because it is, it's something that you don't completely understand until you go through yourself. And, and when you are a parent, uh, I think the opportunity for empathy as a chiropractor is so much greater. Um, and, and I've certainly noticed that my parenting journey has vastly affect, affected my chiropractic knowledge and, my, and what I become interested in as a chiropractor yeah. as well. Yeah, no, I've recognized that too. And I think empathy as well for the fatigue and, you know, sleep deprivation or just, yeah, how much of, of giving of yourself or breastfeeding or, or anything, just the birth <laughs> itself and even just the feelings that you have being pregnant 
it's it's nice to have that empathy and come from yeah I've walked in your shoes as well so I totally agree no birth is no birth is exactly the same but there's a lot in common with that that general helplessness that we can sometimes feel as parents and that ridiculously overjoyed at the smallest thing that we can feel as parents too so it's lovely to be able to share that and, and join in yeah, yeah. Well, what I really want you to share, as you know, on this episode is is your story um, around a tongue tie, which is what we're discussing today. And um, I know you've got, um, yeah, some personal experience and a story to share. So, yeah, share away. So, yeah, that um, the, re- the whole reason I got into tongue tying was because of my third child, Penelope. And for a long time, we referred to her as the third child because she was insanely difficult for a chiropractic baby. So I guess I need to clarify. When I had I had the most amazing home births with all three of my children, I was incredibly well supported with midwifery and beautiful chiropractic colleagues that were able to come in and, and adjust my babies almost as soon as they were born. And um, so I had really great support around that area. And breastfeeding was never a problem for me, really, even with Penelope. Um, but I think... With my third child, I thought I, there was a degree that I could probably have some of this down pat by now, um, particularly with regards to sort of reading a baby and, and seeing how settled they are and, and how well they fed and, and just knowing in general how they're tracking. And with Pip, I just I couldn't – I never felt that she was tracking as well as she should. Um, she, she was hitting her milestones fairly well, you know, in terms of primitive reflexes and, and how well her neurology was, was developing. And, and she would feed and my nipples weren't bleeding or um, terribly flattened or anything like that. But it was probably – she was never as settled as I thought she should be and she never really stretched out her feeds as well as I thought she should. And that was probably the first signs that I had of that. That and a cold she got at three weeks of age. It was this huge cold and she never quite got over it. So she was always a little bit snotty afterwards and it seemed to linger a lot longer than um, any colds that ever lingered with my boys. So she, of course, got regular chiropractic care through this time and her cranials were fabulous and um, and we were I was managing, but it probably got to about three to four months and – um, my milk started to drop off, which had never happened before. And I thought, all right, I'm going to go start checking in on different people um, and see if I can get some help because I don't think something's quite right here. Mm-hmm. And so we did that and we, I, I, I sort of spoke to my midwife, I spoke to a lactation consultant, spoke to my chiropractic colleagues, and I couldn't get a really straight answer for what was going on. And in the back of my mind, I, I was thinking tongue time. At this stage, she was still probably feeding every 50 to 90 minutes. So it was four and a half months of, you know, not getting much more than 40 minutes of sleep at a time and, and still looking after two other kids and running a household and running a business. I, I had to go back to work at about four and a half months when Kit was about four and a half months old. And I was exhausted. I was and it's, you know, you do that thing that every mother does and they just put on that bright space and, and you walk out into, into life and you pretend like it's all okay. But it was just a plastic smile and, and behind doors I'd absolutely fall apart. My husband was a tower of strength at the time. Um, and we were, it was really hard. Um, and I knew something wasn't right with him. I'd had a, um, uh, a good friend of mine about, three or four years prior to that, have a, a beautiful girl after two boys. And she, um, this girl had a cold that wouldn't go away and at six months she'd been diagnosed with leukaemia and by nine months she had died. And I knew that it wasn't leukaemia with Pip, but I was so tired and she was still so snotty. <laughs> and I, in my, when you really let go in that delirium, you could imagine, imagine all sorts of horrific end possibilities um, and I remember it got to that point where I was thinking oh my god does my child have leukemia where and you know google searching symptoms of leukemia and checking to see if she's bruising and, and, and doing uh, this is just ridiculous it's got to stop and I had a good friend of mine who's a, an Australian breastfeeding association advocate and she said there's this lady in North Brisbane she's a lactation consultant her name's Bridget Ingle she specializes in tongue ties you need to go and see her and um, 
I, so I, I went, I booked in with Bridget and I was really nervous because every other person who was supposed to know about this that I had consulted had come up with the most ridiculous diagnosis. Things like, she's just got a heavy tongue or she's just got a big tongue or she's got a small mouth. <laughs> or, and, and when you follow this questioning, which I do as a chiropractor saying, but shouldn't she be able to breastfeed? Isn't breastfeeding like a, a function of normal? Um, they were never really able to give me a good answer or even a, a solution to the problem, even if she does have a heavy tongue. What was the solution? The solution was always supplemental with formula or just keep doing what you're doing. And, and neither of those were good solutions to me because if I kept doing what I was doing, I was probably going to die of exhaustion and, and formula was really something I wanted to avoid and couldn't see the reason for why it was necessary. So I went to see Bridget and I, I saw her when Pip was probably just over six months old. So by this time I'd had very little sleep for half a year. And, and I remember rocking up to her. It was the last day that you could work before Christmas. Um, so it was late December. And I, I went in and I had a consult with her and she's, she's the most delightful woman, Bridget. She's, uh, she's a fountain of knowledge on this subject and, and on most breastfeeding subjects. And she took one look at Pip and she watched me feed her and she assessed, looked at my nipples and looked at all sorts of different things. And she said, yeah, she's tongue-tied and she's, she's got a lip tie as well. Um, and she's not going to feed well until we get that sorted. Um, because it was just before Christmas, it was impossible to get Pip in for a quick revision. And it ended up happening probably around the time Pip was eight and a half months old. And by this time she teethed, um, she, she got six teeth. She'd got four on her bottom and she'd got two on her top, but they weren't the middle two. They weren't the central incisors. They were the ones that are just next to them, the lateral incisors. And so she looked like this big hillbilly, which was horrific. <laughs> I had, um, I was born without a few teeth, so I've got a, a fake tooth in mine. And I was looking at this child going, oh my God, please tell me I made the front teeth for this child. And I, I say that because one of the things that happened she was revised on the Tuesday morning and we had a fairly average night that night. She, um, she swollen up and she refused to feed. We had to syringe feed her that night. It was, it was a fairly terrific time. But by um, the Wednesday, she was feeding already for much longer, for fuller, and she'd started to sleep longer. Um, by Thursday, her front teeth had come down. Um, I had dropped, so she, it turns out I had made them after all. Um, she said her first word. She said, mum. She started to eat solid food and, uh, she, she became a much more settled and happy child. And I couldn't believe the difference that four days had made after her getting a revision, which was a, an upper lip tie and a tongue tie. Um, released and what an effect she, her sinus stuff cleared up um it was just it was mind-blowing my husband and I we just looked at each other and said why doesn't more people know about this because possibly the hardest part of that whole situation was that at, at three and a half months I I had said to the first professional is this a tongue tie and it took until Six and a half months for somebody to be able to definitively diagnose it, and then for eight and a half months for it to be um, sorted out. And and that to me is something that I don't think any other parent should go through. So after three months of sleeping <laughs> relatively well, um, I started to do a lot more research into it, basically with the mission of trying to empower other people to. Know, and particularly health professionals that work with children, to know more about this subject so that they can be really clear in the advice that they give and, and really understand it um, because it has an enormous impact on, on lots of people. And the scary thing is as I got into it more and I understood it more, I realised my journey with tongue was actually a really blessed one. So, you know, I didn't go through half the terrible stuff that most of the mums go through when they have, you know, they the degree of cracked and sore and weeping nipples, the problems with mastitis, the issues with um, trying to, you know, undernourished babies. At least people are still gaining weight and, and, and managing quite well. Um, and I, I think a lot of the reason why Pip managed so well throughout that was because she had excellent chiropractic care, in particular great cranial care. 
um, to help that region. But um, it's yeah, we I, I think I was reading a research article on it too that looked into the experience of mums that are, are, are dealing with tongue tie, and it actually made me cry. I've never read a research article that made me cry, but um, listening to the accounts and, and it is described in the abstract as these accounts are harrowing because there is a lack of support for these women. Um, they are so at risk of postnatal depression. I'm almost more passionate about helping the tongue-tied mothers than I am about helping the tongue-tied children. I'm very passionate about helping them as well. Um, but it has such an impact on that dyad. Uh, and so often the mums are blamed. You know, I, I was told that I was working too hard or I wasn't eating the right foods or I wasn't relaxed enough or I wasn't doing this enough. And we so often are quick to blame the mum in that breastfeeding dyad when so, when most often it's something that's not quite right with the bub. And I think that's one of the smartest things that Bridget Ingle ever said to me was that she said breastfeeding is a function of normal. If there is a child that's born and is unable to breastfeed, you've got to consider that child compromised until you can feed that they're not. Um, and when you sit back and listen to that, you think, oh, that's really obvious, but all the smart stuff is obvious when you think about it. You know, we why would we give birth to a baby that is unable to nourish itself? Um, and so we have to start looking at this breastfeeding complex and this ability for them to breastfeed or not breastfeed as as a as a function of normal. And if it's not, then we need to start investigating the reasons why it may not be. And tongue dysfunction, not necessarily from a tongue tie, but tongue dysfunction is a big part of why breastfeeding can be really difficult. And it's, it's a big part of why chiropractic can help breastfeeding as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a few questions coming up already that I'm sure other mums will be having is maybe some more details about the revision itself and what's involved. And I know there are different procedures according to when it's found. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that so mums know a little bit more about the procedure. And and then, of course, if you've got some thoughts on um, why there's an increase these days in tongue tie and lip tie, I'd like, love to hear your thoughts there. Sure. So the revision process is pretty simple. Um, and you need to go to a qualified person, and I always suggest somebody that's done heaps of them just because you're dealing with babies and you want to, and it's small amounts and you need a degree of accuracy and, and good judgment as to how far they revise. Um, one thing I really want to stress with revision is before you get a revision done, it needs to be functionally assessed. Um, so we need to really make clear the difference between a tongue dysfunction that is happening because of a cranial strain pattern and a tongue dysfunction that is happening because those areas are tethered from a tongue tie. And the two can look very similar and it's really important that that distinction is made. Um, the way I handle that in my practice is that I often will, will check people a number of times before I recommend a revision just to make sure that, and that does two things. One, that is, um, it makes sure that the cranial areas are working as well as they can before the revision happens so that the person doing the revision is able to do it as accurately as possible. And two, it allows um, us to be able to solve any kind of dysfunction that's happening as a result of the cranial strain pattern. So if, if this person comes in and their tongue is not working properly um, and that resolves through adjusting, well, then we know that that's because the, the nerves and the muscles around that area just needed a little bit of balancing out and they don't need a revision. But if it gets to the point where they need a revision, um, it just it depends. Clipping or laser, I'm not really fussed which one you choose as long as you choose somebody who is competent and, um, and experienced in it. So for PIP, we, we went with a laser. Um, and we did that because the, our options were a very experienced laser person or a very experienced tongue clipper, but at her age, she was eight and a half months and he was, he would have been preferred to put her under a general anesthetic if he wanted to clip because it takes a little bit longer and sometimes sutures are necessary. Um, so we went with the laser because it meant we could avoid a general anesthetic, um, which was preferable. The laser itself, she had a really big lip tie. It was literally keeping her up a teeth out. Um, and so that was, that probably took, I think it probably took about a minute and a half for her. And the, for the tongue release, it probably took 30 seconds. Um, it is a bit uncomfortable. It's not a fun procedure to be a part of. 
we wrapped Pip up in a blanket and I made my husband hold her. I totally chickened out. Um, we, she had to have glasses put on her with the laser. You don't want anything near the eyes. And, and my husband Shane, he had glasses on and I stood in the corner and cried because it doesn't tickle. Um, and then straight afterwards she breastfed and she was fine. It wasn't really until about five or six hours later when the inflammation process came up and it was really restricting her tongue movement again. And that's why we had such a, a difficult time that night. Um, but literally by you know, the next morning things started to settle down and move and she started to be able to retrain her tongue and retrain um, the way she swallowed um, and, and deal with that a lot better. And that's a big part of it too. I think when you're considering the process, I always suggest great quality chiropractic care beforehand um, and great quality chiropractic care afterwards. And depending on the age, you might need to deal with speech pathologists or ophthalmologists or, um, or a facial myologist to be able to help adequately rehabilitate the area. And that, that's just, you know, we do that for any kind of surgery. If you have an arthroscopy or if you have, um, you know, if you broke my arm, my son had to get a broken arm set and there was there was rehabilitation to be done after that just to make sure everything's moving properly and, and rewired properly again. So it's, it's, it's worth looking at the tongue in the same light. Does that answer the question enough? Yeah, it was amazing. Um, lots of information there. That's great. And then the the other question was, do you have any thoughts on to why there's an increase these days? The incidents are really interesting. So part of it is that we're beginning to understand a lot more about that area of the body. So if you just take a moment to, to think about how complex the mouth and and breathing structure is, it involves you know, some, over 30 or so months, just a swallow involves 31 muscles, six cranial nerves and a few um, spinal nerves as well. It, 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 and it, that area is the first region to develop in the womb. So it's the first, you know, the face area is so much linked to the rest of the body because of that. So if you think about your swallowing, that involves a group of muscles, Called the sphincter, called a sphincter, and we have a number of different sphincters through our body, and they're all neurologically linked. So, the potential sequelae of, of having dysfunction with the swallowing, which can cause um, can be a cause of tongue tie, can have a big effect on the rest of the body. And we're just beginning to understand how important this region is for the whole body function. So, the reason I bring that up is because. A lot of the diagnosis of tongue tie is done from a functional perspective. It's done from understanding how the tongue's moving, how the, how the swallowing complex is happening, um, any kind of postural issues that might happen, any kind of um, palate dysfunction or cranial uh, developmental dysfunction that's happening, um, and, and digestive issues. So we're beginning to understand that the symptoms of a, a tongue-tied child can be really many and varied, but they can all be linked back to this one issue. So if we look at the incidents now, some people say it's anywhere between 1%, and I've heard up to 25%, which I think is slightly ridiculous. Um, yeah, I think most conservative estimates put it somewhere between 4 and 10%, which is still a pretty high number of children. The reason it's happened, the, the reason there's so much confusion over rates and diagnosis is because there's not a really great system for diagnosing it. So you can have really grey areas as to what somebody would call tongue tie and what somebody else would just call tongue dysfunction. Um, so there's confusion amongst all, all that. But I think part of what's contributing to it can be an understanding of uh, there is a definite genetic component. There's a, a component that says that males are three times more likely to get it than females. Um, there, there's talk around a, a gene mutation called the MTHFR, which is very much linked to uh, folic acid and the types of folic acid we're taking. And there's been a really big push to improve our folic acid uptake um, because we because of the likes of spina bifida and, and other aspects that can happen as a result of low folate levels, but it's the type of folate and the way your body handles that that has been linked to tongue tie, and, and that that's a really complex area looking at. Um, and, and it's it's a bit beyond my my knowledge, to be honest. I know outskirts of it, but there's that idea. There's also another idea that previously we used to diagnose tongue tie fairly regularly and fairly well, and then in the 70s with 
with the onset of formula and, and the um, most difficulties in breastfeeding was just dismissed for, um, oh, we'll just put them on formulas and, and that'll fix the problem. Um, so there was, there's a time there where it wasn't well diagnosed. And so it could mean that the increase in diagnosis is now is because we're, we're, we're getting back to actually understanding the importance of breastfeeding, understanding the importance of long-term breastfeeding and trying to look at ways in which we can problem solve that. And if you look at our breastfeeding figures in Australia, initially the uptake of breastfeeding is around 80%, and by six months it's around 14%, and the biggest drop happens around three to four months. And if you look at the way that the mouth develops, that mouth and, and neck region develops around that three to four months, that's around the time the hyoid bone, which is a little bone that sort of sits suspended below your chin, um, and that, that drops down and, and your neck starts to elongate. Um, and that, that happens around three to four months. And the, the effect of that is it pulls on the posterior part of the tongue, so the back part of the tongue, and it tensions that area. Um, so previous to that, that happening, um, our soft palate and a place called our epiglottis are really close together, and it makes the coordination of what we call suck, swallow, breathe, which is really important to breathe, uh, to breastfeeding. So we, we suck the, the, um, the breast milk in, and then we, Hot, suspend our breath while we get the breast milk past the scary bit of the airways opening and then we can continue breathing afterwards. Um, and so that's really easy in the first three, three or so months because that all the structures that are required for that are really close together. But around that three to four months time, that hyoid bone drops down and, and separates that further and it makes um, coordination of that swallow, uh, that suck, swallow, breathe sequence a lot harder. And so kids that may have a tongue tie that they're coping quite well with before then can often have a lot of problems start around that three to four months. And that's exactly where I found it with Pip. And she had that thing called a posterior tongue tie that gets a lot worse around that three to four months early. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what does that do to the quality of the suck in terms of when they're first, like as a newborn, and then that after that three-month mark? I mean, or was that you noticed the quality of the suck was not good at all anyway? Yeah, I think the quality of the suck was never fabulous for Pip when I compare it to my eldest child, children. Um, but it was definitely, co- she coped quite well at that stage. And I wouldn't, it was nothing that I would have been really particularly concerned with. It was around that three to four month time, it got much more chompy. Um, and she, she showed other qualities of breastfeeding that, you know, that on and off again, the boob really fussy at the breast. Um, Obviously, gagging on things, having trouble with the letdown, um, tiring really easily. Um, and if you think about this, this struggle to feed and breathe, it's quite a stressful thing for the baby. If they're not able to feed and, and if, you know, to choose between feeding and breathing and, and have that be such a, um, an epic choice for that little kid at that time, it must be so hard for them. Um, I, I noticed that I had to feed her in more upright position because uh, it would help her with her gag reflex a lot more. So there were lots of different things that uh, she got more gassy because she, was, she wasn't getting much of a home milk because it, she'd fall asleep. It was so hard. It took so much effort for her to feed um, and to coordinate feeding um, that she'd fall asleep before she got the hind milk. So she'd get more gassy and more colic-type symptoms. Um, she vomited a little bit more. Um, lots of signs, I guess. Lots of signs that that whole breast, you know, your normal signs that you look for in that breastfeeding context where you, you think, okay, something's not quite right. Um, and and she was she was coping, but she wasn't coping well. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, that was that was my first sign, thinking, okay, all right, we need to, something's not quite right. She had a, a notch on her tongue, so she had the typical heart-shaped tongue as well. Yeah. And she still has that notch, even though it's been released. So it got worse and worse until it got released, and then it hasn't and hasn't changed since then. And um, so, so mum's also been looking for like a click. I mean, there's, you've given so many signs there. Yeah, you can get on and off the things. Constant sinus um, uh, and sleeping with their mouth open, um, breathing through the mouth, uh, forward head posture, uh, um, snoring. Um, what else? There's, yeah, there's heaps. There's, there's so heaps. many signs and symptoms of tongue tie. And, and it's really easy to 
misdiagnose it if you just go on the symptoms either. So I, I always really suggest go to somebody who knows something about it. Go see a chiropractor that has studied Kung Pai. Go see um, a, a lactation consultant that knows something about it. Keep asking questions until you, you're comfortable with the answers that they've given you um, because you can get a lot of stupid answers with respect to this. And um, a lot of paediatric doctors and ENTs will recognise severe tongue ties, but they won't recognise necessarily the posterior ones, um, which is interesting. Uh, so there, there's, there can be, you can get lots of misinformation. And my response to that is to always just keep asking questions until you feel comfortable with, with what they're telling you. And that, that, that made the difference. That was the difference that Bridget Ingle made to me. She, I just was able to keep asking questions and she wasn't offended by them. She wasn't flustered by them. She had an answer for all of them. She knew what she was talking about. Yeah, and then and then we we had a little chat in the pre-chat also about um you know maybe missing it and recognizing it in the older child. Was it Angus that you said there was an issue? Yeah. yeah so after I had a little bit more sleep again and I was reading a bit more into it, I, I looked at Angus. I thought, oh my God, he's tongue tied as well, and he managed well. He self weaned at seventeen months, which I was devastated about. Um, but it seemed to be what he wanted, and initially he loved food. He would come like scoff down solid food without any problems. He, he, spoke, he spoke well, he, you know, he developed all the way we expected until he was about in kinder. And then he got really fussy with his food and really hard to handle with his food. But he just, um, he would take a, an hour and a half to two hours to eat a really simple meal and it was the most frustrating thing I've ever faced as a parent. Um, and I'm, I did some very poor parenting in that time until I realised he was tongue-tied. <laughs> I felt very bad afterwards. Um, but he, so he was infuriating to see, and his speech was not just plateauing, it was regressing. He was becoming harder and harder to understand. So uh, I was looking at the different things, and I, I had learned a little bit about tongue at that stage, and I assessed him, and I thought, oh, I'm pretty sure you're tongue tied. And then we went and got him checked, and, and he was revised at, at five. And the difference, again, what's, what's interesting with Angus too was he, he had a propensity to sinus issues, but not a huge amount. He had a, um, a slight propensity to mouth breathing. He still breathed a lot through his nose, but every now and then you'd, I'd sort of catch him, um, particularly if he had a snotty nose, go find more to mouth breathing. Um, but he also was a lot harder to toilet him. Um, and there's, there's a link between, uh, the, I've read a few links between, um, this idea of, uh, mouth breathing and, and not sleeping necessarily as well and in your sleep as well. So, uh, it was interesting to me that once we, um, once we revised his tongue, he fed better, he spoke clearer and he, he was able to clear up his sinus stuff much more quickly. And, and he definitely, he was toilet trained, uh, he was already toilet trained at that stage, but it, it became a lot easier. He wasn't getting up as often at night and, and all that sort of stuff. So interesting. Uh, Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. What a, yeah. what a story. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, of course I completely understand why you're doing so much work in this area now. Um, maybe you have an affirmation or a quote that you could share with the listeners and it's meaning to you. Yeah, my favourite quote when it comes to parenting is, is by Elizabeth Stone, and it's called, it says, making the decision to have a child is momentous. It is to decide forever to have your heart go and walk about outside your body. And I, I think for me, there's nothing that encapsulates parenting more. Um, that we, I, you try not to live vicariously through your children, but you definitely are attached to their highs and lows. And um, I think the hardest part as a parent is learning to cope with the struggle of a child um, because my, my knowledge of chiropractic says that we, our bodies and our brains grow through experiences and you know, just as it's counterintuitive to do your kids' homework, it's also counterintuitive to try and help them walk before they're ready. Um, and, you know, I, I look back to my parenting times and I think oh, those that week before they learnt to crawl was the most frustrating week of our lives because they're grumpy because they're, they're almost able to do something but not quite and, and, and I'm still being the gopher. And in that moment when they start to crawl and they can go get the thing that they want to get and, um, and that the happiness and the, the pride that they feel in that and the pride that you feel in those little small steps is huge. So um, I love that quote about Elizabeth Stone. I think it encapsulates parenting beautifully. 
and also as a health professional, it helps as well because you, you're trying to teach people um, to not do it, to let their their baby struggle a little bit so that they can learn what they need to learn so that they can, their brain can develop the way it needs to develop is a really important part of parenting, I think. Absolutely. I mean, it's a detriment to them to try and help them now. You're, you're, not, you're not helping them later on, that's for sure. Yeah, you've got to help them develop rather than just help them do what you know, they teach them to fish rather than give them a fish. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Well, I know you're a listener of the show and you know it's all about community here and what we like to do is also, uh, I mean, you've definitely shared a big struggle, but I'd love to hear if there was another one um, in the parenting uh, experience so far that you could share with the listeners and, and how you got out of it. God, I struggle all the time. <laughs> well, that's true. We all do. So, but maybe there's something that, you know, you could give a piece of advice if someone's feeling the same experience. Yeah, I remember when I, I became a mum as a, a big surprise. So Oscar was a massive surprise for me. I wasn't you know, thinking about parenting quite so early, um, but a very welcome surprise. Um, and I, I remember I, I became a parent a lot of time, a fair way before any of my siblings or any of my close friends were um, a parent. So for a long time there, it was, it's really interesting to live in this world where I had a baby and my perspectives had completely changed and they, they just didn't get it. <laughs> and I, one particular time I remember being in, um, in Mexico to celebrate a, a dear friend's wedding. And as part of that, we all had this, it was an awesome trip. We all sort of went around in these two buses and they, they showed us different parts of Mexico. It was, it was amazing. It ended in a place called Acapulco at this beautiful resort. Um, and we'd, we'd been traveling in the car, in the bus for maybe three or four hours and I was a bit crabby. Um, I was traveling with Angus at the time. So we left Oscar with my parents and Angus was probably two and a half, three months old. Um, and we got out of the uh, bus and I can't remember what Shane did, but he did something that really annoyed me. I was very angry. <laughs> we had a bit of a tiff in the hotel foyer and he went off to, um, surf in the sea with, with Manuel, our friend, and I thought, I'll take Angus for his first swim. And it took me, you know, half an hour longer than everybody else to get ready for the for the pool because I had to get myself ready. I had to get him ready. And, I, you know, I, I, everyone else swanned over to the pool with their room key and their towel and I had nappy bags. And <laughs> Wipes and sunscreen <laughs> and, yeah, water, yeah. Well. Just ridiculous. And, so I finally got ready and sorted out and I was holding Angus in my arms and he was telling me room for his first swim and I could see my friends in the pool and, and I just tipped over the precipice of the edge when I heard my friend saying, it's actually quite deep there, Joe." <laughs> there was no way back. So I, I jumped into the pool and I just had to put Angus right up in the air because it was way too deep. It was about two, two metres deep. <laughs> oh, my God. So here I am furiously doing this egg beater kick, trying to keep my kid alive. <laughs> just jumped in the pool without thinking properly. And thank God Shane came back at that moment. He just he, he turned into surf lifesaver and just jumped in the pool and he grabbed his and turned over and we had this moment where we looked in each other's eyes and he wanted to yell at me and I wanted to yell at him and he just we just went, Oh thank God he's okay. <laughs> Are you okay? And and everything was fine after that. But I think um as a, what it taught me is that I had to just slow down and enjoy what was happening to me at that time and to stop trying to keep up with my friends that weren't there, um, but to connect with them in ways that I could because they all came over and laughed and giggled and, and then all of a sudden we were all going to a more convenient part of the pool and we could all hang out together and, and there was nobody feeling left out and I wasn't struggling to, and you know, Angus became Angus's first swim became this beautiful community affair. And when I look back at that time, I think, yeah, just slow down and be grateful for what you've got, and to know that that there is an order for everything, Um, and to not be afraid of making mistakes because you can learn from them as long as you don't kill them. (laughs) I think something I've learned is that the grass is always greener on the other side, and I don't know what that is about human nature, but we somehow always think that you know they've got it better than us. So, you know, they're able to be free and, you know, fancy free and going out, you know, on a Saturday night and doing whatever they want and they don't have to be there. But I know there's lots of people out there who really wish they had a child and were stuck at home every every weekend as well. So and interesting, a number of those people when they, they've got to that part in their life when they're ready to have a child, a, a couple of them have really struggled. And 
you know, I, it makes me look back at that time and think, no, I really am quite fortunate for lots of stuff. You know, an attitude really is the antidote to fear of missing out. Your gratitude is that antidote, I think. Agree, agree. So you run your own practice. You're a mum of three, and uh, well, there obviously uh, there's a bit of age difference there. So they're at different stages. What is it that drives you and gets you up in the morning to do what you do? Because you do a lot. Yeah, I do. Um, I I think what makes me really excited. I'm a really curious person. I love learning new things, and I have this terrible habit of sharing whatever I learn with anybody that will listen. Um, so I'm I'm that mum that takes too long at drop off. That talks about the latest book that I've read, um, looking at brain development and, and the importance of left and right brain connection and, and how that might uh, impact a grade three kid. Um, I'm and that that's really what I love when I look at what is that commonality between everything that I do. I love learning about it and I love sharing that learning. I think that we all benefit from knowledge and I think once you have knowledge in a certain area you have uh, almost like um, a a responsibility to share it with people that can benefit from it I I don't I was laughing with a friend saying I don't understand international intellectual property (laughs) I don't get it I just share it (laughs) 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 I I, I can't even I can't keep a secret you know it just it just comes out and I love being able to learn and, and I'm lucky in that I've got a brain that can that finds reading journal articles interesting and, and I love connecting with different experiences that I might be seeing in my practice or in my own life or in my friends' lives and I love being able to um, take that knowledge and, and find a practical use for it and, and to to because I think as parents we've all we all don't have a clue what we're doing really. We're sort of trying to put our best foot forward um, in a way that in the direction we feel most confident in. But it's no, nobody comes with a handbook, and nobody's—I don't think anybody's got this whole parenting thing completely down pat. Um, so I, I love—I love that as a as a mum, as a, a, a friend, and as a chiropractor, I love looking for knowledge and, and to be able to share that with people that I think will benefit from it. No, and I think it's constantly changing. I mean, some of the things I hear from the mums with older kids at school, you know, and these kids have mobile phones or, you know, they go on a bus for, let's say, a, a school trip and they've all got an iPad and, you know, they're sitting there. We used to, you know, play I Spy or sing a song. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is the world that they're living in is changing and, and we can sort of push against the whole iPads, you know, mathletics or, or um Reading eggs. The reading eggs, exactly, is exactly what I was going to say and all these sort of things. But it is going to be their world and to deprive them of the electronics is also going to be detrimental to them. We don't know what the future is going to be in terms of learning and these kids that are going through kindergarten and the early learning, I mean, they don't even know yet how they're going to be able to teach them in the final years because they don't know what roles are going to be there for them. So it's um, it's just constantly evolving and, and thank God, you know, that we've got all this access to things and, and people that have got more passion in, in certain areas that they can read up and teach us. Thank God for that. Um, yeah. If you could go back in time, Joe, and, and tell um, that pregnant self for the first time something that would help you or maybe what you said before, or just help you in your parenting experience, if you could share something with mums with a baby in their belly now, what would it be? Uh, the, um, i tell them to learn about tongue tie. <laughs> 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 um, uh, no, I think I think the whole mantra of being kind to yourself, the, the thing I've learned that's been the most helpful for me as a mum is to um, learn how to put the oxygen mask on first. And sometimes that means... Um, Spending time with other mums that you get on with that you you know that that think the way you do and that can be hard to find um, parents that will have a, a similar sort of approach to parenting and find things that are similar sort of important place importance on certain things the same way you would. I, I think when you find people like that, hold on tight to them and 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 spend time download with them. Don't be afraid to admit when you jumped in a pool and nearly killed the child because I think. When we can share those sorts of stories, we share, uh, we, we stop this whole idea of super mummy. And, and when we can admit our vulnerability, we can then help each other through it. Um, and that, that, understand, being comfortable with your vulnerability is for me the key to parenting because it's just as important when you're pregnant 
or when, and it's really important when you're giving birth. And it's and it's really important as a parent too. Um, years ago, I read the beginning of a book by Janine Greer, and she said that she wished her mum had said to her, you know what, in your life you're going to need, say, these ten skills. And I'm really good at the first seven, but I'm going to need to outsource help for the last three. Um, and I think as a parent, sometimes we try and do it all. And, and knowing that and, and by finding that nice network, by admitting our vulnerabilities and knowing our downfalls and finding that nice network of people that might be able to fill in those holes for our kids, I think that's that's really important as well. So, I yeah. think that's, that's a lesson just in general um, maturity into adulthood actually you know not even just parenting there's that you know we can't do it all and uh, you know know your team players is what I like to say know who are the experts and who really love doing that and uh, who are going to do it better than you and and you know delegate um, that's my little take um, what's some of the best advice you ever received Joe? I think the best advice I ever got was from my mum and it started from a really early age mum had five kids we were all posterior births, so they're all pretty full-on labours. Um, wow, and, we need to get her on the show. <laughs> yeah, probably. And she did it all naturally. And in the hospital, so, you know, all 30-plus years ago. And she, she managed, and I think what she got from that was she instilled in us that we are capable of doing that ourselves. And that that, that idea of women, and, you know, she she... she Raised by massive feminists, even though Connor's a boy, he's still a massive feminist. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and and I think that that kind of approach to don't to to back yourself and to believe that you can, um, that's the best advice I've ever been given. And whether that's applicable to birthing or or any other aspect, just to to give yourself to back yourself. And to know that there is there is no limit on possibility, and that you are capable of doing almost anything you can dream of. But you know that's that's the best part I think I've ever been given. And, you know that that beautiful upbringing of not just mum and dad. Dad did dad helped out a bit too, but mum particularly with that respect to um, birthing, because I think my birth experiences then really flowed onto a, a positive parenting experience too. I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. And that's one of the biggest reasons why I wanted my daughter at the birth of my little one. Yeah. To show them for the very eyes that what's possible and what's normal. And um, if they've seen it at such a young age, it just becomes normal for them. And it's, yeah, possibility. It's just normal. Yeah. It's, and, you know, people, I had my boys at Pittsburgh and people were really unsure of that when I spoke about it. But it's the best thing that's ever happened for our family and that, it instantaneously brings bonding to siblings. Um, and there's a beautiful picture I have of the kids all together and it's probably about 30 minutes on. Um, and there's, you know, a, but it also allows them to experience the wonder of a, a person giving birth. And so those awkward conversations about the birds and bees later on become so much more easy because it's just a statement of fact. Oh, yeah, this is how it happens. Well, I found her very blasé during the whole thing. Like, oh, yeah, we made those noises. We, we pretended, we, you know, we read books and we made those noises together. And, yeah, whatever, mum's having a baby over there and I'm just happy playing with my doll, actually. So, you know, so it was, it's, yeah, it's in their yeah. world, it's very normal. Yeah, exactly. And it's when I was pushing Pippa, I got their head and their shoulders out. And um, he said, mum, I can see the head. And I said, yeah. I can feel it, lust. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was straight into the action area. Oscar was a little bit more cautious, and he, he wanted to make sure I was okay. He wasn't used to me making those noises, but um, once I winked at him, he was fine. He was on board too. Funny, funny. Um, I'd love you to share some invaluable resources for the listeners, whether it relates to tongue tie, where they can look for more information, um, or anything on parenting that you'd love to share with them. Sure. So, um, tongue tie. Uh, there's a really great uh, – there's some great Facebook pages uh, for parents of tongue-tied children. Um, uh, uh, so there's Parents of Tongue-Tied Support Group, I think. There's a number of different Facebook pages I can go through. Um, there's the Austlit um, Tongue-Tied Facebook page for professionals, which is invaluable for any chiropractors, lactation consultants. I mean, you have to be a professional to be on the page, but that's really helpful. 
Um, there's a, a blog done by a, a pediatric dentist in the States called Bobby Gaffery, and he does some, he, he makes, he really simplifies it nicely for, um, parents struggling to make the decision. Um, there's a book by Alison Hazelbaker called Tongue Tie, and there's another one by Carmen, I forget her name, Fernando, I think. Um, she wrote one, Tongue Tie from Confusion to Clarity. So there's a, there's a huge number of people that will blog about it and talk about it. Um, and I, I guess for the layperson, the more knowledge you can have about it, the better, so that you're better able to answer questions, ask questions when you need to go to see somebody. Um, because there still is a whole heap of confusion over it. And your best path through this is finding somebody who understands the topic. And your best way of finding that person is really to ask lots of questions. Yeah. All right, thanks. Well, I'll make sure that they're in the show notes so that it's clear for everyone to be able to find those. And if you're subscribed to the newsletter that you get every week with the show, then you get that emailed straight to your inbox after every show, all the show notes. So I just thought I'd mention that. But Joe, it's been amazing. Um, I'd love you to share how people can get in touch with you and find out more about what you're doing up where you are. And if there's anything you want to share in terms of a Facebook page or website, um, I'd love to hear it so people can yeah find you find you more easily. Sure. Well, I work at a, a clinic called Kinsland Chiropractic in Mullaney, Um and it has a website. I think it's www.kinslandchiropractic.com. Um, and I have a Facebook page, and they're probably the easiest ways. I'm more than happy to um, answer any questions around this topic. Please feel free to contact me um, on on it. For the professionals, anyone who's listening as a chiropractor, we're, we're doing a big talk on this uh, in a couple of weeks' time down in Melbourne um, with another really smart bloke called Sandy Clark, and he knows a heap about this. He's been doing it for 12 or 13 years. Um, so, yeah, we're, that's through SOT. Um, and, yeah, and I'm on the board of SOT. I do a lot of work with psychological organisation in Australia. So that's another avenue that can get in contact with me for that. And if, if they really can't find you, they can get get through me and I'll put you in touch as well. So I'm a bit of a technological nutty, so just keep calm. <laughs> <laughs> But you've given such a good, uh, such a good interview here, and I've loved having you on. And you know, it's uh, it's going to actually be one of our longest ones. And I told you you wouldn't have any trouble, you know, finding things to say. And um, yeah, it's been a real joy. And we might have to find an opportunity to either get your mum on or have another episode. I'm not sure what, but um, loved, <laughs> I loved having you on, Joe. Thanks so much for giving back. Thanks, Kaz. It's a pleasure to be a part of it. Awesome. Enjoy your day. Cheers, love. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Mums the Word. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes and join us on our Facebook page to help us share the message to more mums all over the world. We look forward to having you join us again next time here on your trusted source for all mums everywhere, Mums the Word. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.